Welcome to the Wisdom Rising podcast. I'm your host, Lama Sultrama Alione, and my goal with this podcast is really to open your own wisdom, to have your own wisdom rising, either through the meditations that I lead or introduce you to, or to the people that I interview that bring wisdom with them in their own voice, in their own traditions. So we look forward to raising our wisdom together on the Wisdom Rising podcast. And I'm so happy to share this with you. Annie, I'm so excited to talk to you and be with you this morning. I'm so happy to be here. I've been um, enjoying your Dusk Night Dawn book. Thank you. And I like actual books, even though I have too many. And yeah, I shouldn't keep buying them, but I do. So here we are in this moment in our world that is so challenging. And I think we all have a little bit of disaster overload at the moment and how to be able to keep that spark of love and connection going when the onslaught seems always bigger and more desperate. So I just wondered how you are with that and how you handle that. Well, last week I wrote a Facebook page post. I, I, I don't have an interactive Facebook, but I have an author's Facebook. You may also, and I post little essays there. And I wrote about having catastrophe overload and catastrophe burnout. You know, and Maui was on fire, that precious, precious island and her people. And, you know, and I wrote about what we do to to both hold that in our heart, the suffering and the fearfulness, and at the same time, practice goodness and mercy. And because goodness and mercy give us hope, you know, and if we want to have loving feelings, we, we need to do loving things that we take the action and then the insight follows. So last week I was writing about what you could do, the, the, some of the loving actions, often including radical self-love and self-forgiveness, the hardest work we do. And this week, just literally minutes ago, I posted a piece, uh, you know, I'm a Sunday school teacher, and I, I was going to talk with the kids about the famous passage in Jeremiah where he said, the harvest is in, the summer is past, and we are not saved. You know, what do you do? And you do what what worked for the prophet Jeremiah. You turn toward goodness. You you do loving things. There's a wonderful foundation that Barack Obama has been promoting. And I posted that at Facebook. And you, you know, you speak gently with yourself. And, you know, you remember that other people aren't the problem. You get off other people's backs. My best girlfriend and I were laughing about something she'd heard the other day. Someone saying, I, I no longer need a, to bring a bat or a pointer to resolve problems. Now I just remember to, to wash my, the lenses of my glasses, you know, because I, when I, I got sober 37 years ago, and one of the first things I heard was, it's not them. You know, if you got a problem, go look in the mirror and, you know, yeah, fluff up that spark, blow a little gentle oxygen onto it and, and get outside. You know, that nature is, is medicine. So we do that kind of healing and 
you know, and then we are saved for now. And the now is all we've ever had. So that's what I do is partly I write about it. I'm kind of a minister and I try to help other people get their senses of humor back. You know, laughter is carbonated holiness, I always say. And if you can, nothing breaks the trance. It's like getting spritzed with a plant mister. You know, if you laugh with somebody, you are saved. Yeah. Yeah, that can be good in relationships too, right? If you're struggling in a relationship and then somehow you can find something to laugh about together, Uh it, it breaks that dark cloud that's, you know, gotten a hold of of you. Yeah, definitely. I wondered about you now. You're married. Since how long? Four years. We've been together seven, four and a half years. Yeah. Did the actual act of getting married change something for you? That's a good question. Not really, but finding this really brilliant, gentle, spiritually centered man, seven years ago this month did you know because it it really gave me a sense of safety that Mm -hmm. i had never quite had and boy it took me out of my comfort zones i i'm really such a introvert and a loner i love solitude i always have i did it and i've always had a few very 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 best friends and i've always loved to be alone and and he i mean we have so much in common and so much is very different. Like he would go to hear live music every night. And I would probably never again go to hear live music except for Krishna Das. <laughs> oh, <laughs> really from morning till 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 midnight. And um, so, I mean, I'd go once a, once a month and he would literally go three times a week. We both love the San Francisco Giants. We're both very, very involved in as seekers as spiritual seekers and he's very funny and it it's so amazing for someone i think it does change you molecularly to be loved by somebody who can see all of your stuff i don't know what the buddhist word is but for you know all your stuff you know all the stuff in your carry-on luggage gets taken out over the years and 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 they just love you anyway and and they feel for you and you know it's not a a meadow full of unicorns it's very lifey at times but we've let each other know each other and um and that's a very profound um sanctuary yeah and does the bond of of knowing that you're married change anything not really the married part doesn't really (laughs) feel like it's a person it doesn't it doesn't really feel like a, a big thing in my being that I'm married. It was never, I mean, I did want to get married, especially when I was younger. I thought it was like what you did and it meant that you were chosen, you know, but, but being chosen is an inside job and the married part feels kind of, well, it's, you know, I'm also a senior. I'm also all these other identities, but the, the married part, the, the the legality or the fact that if we ever did break up it would be extremely expensive and uh, and a mess is true but I I can honestly tell you the partnership is profound and the the married you know mm-hmm. is not to me mm-hmm. yeah yeah thank you 
Are you married? No. Uh -huh. I, I was for 22 years, and then my husband died. Uh -huh. um, very suddenly in the middle of the night. Oh. At a very young age. Oh. And, uh, hard. Oh, so hard. Hard hardest thing I've ever experienced. Oh yeah. And I lost a child as well. So wow. I, know, I know what's hard. Yeah. Uh, this was because we were partners on every level. Mm -hmm. And so in love and so close. And it was so unexpected. Mm -hmm. Um yeah. So I understand everything that you just said about that safety and mm -hmm. I'm in a relationship now and building that safety, mm -hmm. gradually, hopefully. I wasn't for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So it is a, something that when he died, when David, David was his name, Dave called him. And um, I felt just completely devastated and like, I really didn't know if I wanted to keep living, honestly. Mm -hmm. And gradually, I knew I had to. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then I gradually felt that I wanted to be in a relationship again. And I felt like maybe there was something wrong with me that I did. And I really wanted that, you know, and I really, sh I should be fine alone. I should, you know, not need this, etc. And so then I found the writing of Sue Johnson and Dan Tatkin about attachment theory. Mm -hmm. And are you familiar with that? Yeah, but can you say more about that right now? Yeah, in attachment theory, the idea is that the need to have secure attachments to at least one other human being is a need like drinking mm -hmm. and eating and breathing, that it's actually a human survival need mm -hmm. to need and want relationship is something that is innate to our human nature and important. And it's not something that you should feel bad about or that you should feel you should be able to get over, or if you really had your shit together, you wouldn't feel that way, you know? And so they, they talk about that. And it was such a relief for me mm -hmm. to feel like, yeah, that that's how I feel. But I felt like there was something wrong with me because I felt that way. So it's something that has has been important to me. And I, I was a nun. I don't know if you know that, but I was a Buddhist nun in my 20s. And so, of course, I wasn't in relationship then. And that was actually really good for me because I had been very boyfriend-oriented mm -hmm. my whole life. And, you know, what's he doing? What's happening with him and him, him, him you know? And so just to be a maiden and to belong to no man and to be just dedicated to my spiritual path was a way for me to come into wholeness within myself. And then I went on to disrobe and get married and have kids and so on. But that was a important moment for me personally, because I was really kind of, 
I, I guess you could say almost obsessed or fixated on, on this, on the guy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah. So that was important. And I think it's important for everyone to have that. Well, for women to have that maiden part of themselves, the maiden belongs to no man. Mm -hmm. And maybe, and maybe that maiden is, you know, 50 or 60 years old, but mm -hmm. just that state of wholeness within yourself, mm -hmm. which sounds like you have that, that you're, you have that comfort in, in being alone, that you actually enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I always have. And yeah, I had what you have. I mean, I would call it an addiction. In my case, there's a profound book. I think I read for the first time 25 years ago by Pia Melody called Facing Love Addiction. And in it, she describes the people like me who needed that constant affirmation and pet me, pet me, pet me. And do you still love me? Oh, and needed the affirmation. But I, I people like me always picked the avoidance addict or the guy who withheld because I was getting my the intensity in my life through the relationship. And he was getting his intensity from the workaholism, you know, outside the relationship. And so it's the most life, it was the most life-changing book I can think of off the top of my head that, mm -hmm. um, that she talks about this pie chart. I'll just tell you really briefly, a pie chart in the first slice of the pie, the love addict me and the avoidance addict meet and, and they fall in love and it's great and they have so much in common and, you know, and they're in bed a lot and they're in joy and they're in trance right? It's a trance, which I love as an addict, and everything works fine. And then in the second part of the slide, the person like me needs a little more, leans on and wants them to check in a little more. And this is a problem for them because they get high on the avoidance. And then in the third piece of the pie, it's becoming an issue. I'm feeling frantic. I am just needing him to check in with me more. And if several hours pass and he hasn't returned my call or text, you know, I'm, my, my pulse is racing, blah, blah, blah. And he's getting high from the power of, of kind of watching me getting a, a, a hit, kind of a sexual hit from watch, from feeling this energy. And then in the fourth part of the pie, things fall apart. They break up. The love addict falls to pieces. The avoidance addict feels this incredible relief that she's off his back. But the love addict has been doing love and relationships and best friends. Always right. You always had best girlfriends. And I did, or I did anyway. I always had like a totally intimate community. I had that. The avoidance addict didn't because he does withholding as a way to get high and avoidance and armor. And so they break apart. And then in the fifth part, the womb, the love addict is crying and feeling her grief and being comforted. And it's a nightmare, but she's doing the work, right? And the, for the avoidance addict, he's noticing this horrible silence that no, no horse, horse hoofs chasing down the alley. Come back, come back. I can't live without you, right? So what does he do? He comes back because they both have the same issue, which is the terror of alone, of being alone and the terror of intimacy. You know, in recovery, intimacy is into me, I see. And that's yes. scary. So they get back together and they end up in the first slice of the pie where everyone's in love and you're jamming and you're in bed all the time and you're flooded with endorphins, right? And if you don't break that cycle, you just keep going through over and over again. So... That sounds familiar. Huge life changer for me. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I just read that in your in 
dusk, night, dawn, intimacy is into me, I see. That's so profound. So I wanted to shift to another subject. Sure. Which is writing. Mm. I'm working on a memoir. And I notice that you are extremely productive. And for me, I've had such a hard time finding time for it and actually moving ahead with it. And so I wonder what your writing discipline is, or do you have a time you do? What's your ritual? What's, you know, what's your, the way that you hold that process of writing? Well, Sultran, you have this incredibly committed practice in, in Sangha. And, and I don't, you know, I'm a mother and a grandmother. I'm in recovery. I go to church once a week. I'm a Sunday school teacher. And so first of all, you know, our worlds are really, really different. And I don't have, I don't have much else to do on any given day, except take care of the animals, go for a walk. And, you know, I'm working, it's always the same for all of us. I'm finishing up my 20th book that will come out on my 70th birthday next April. And it's just the same as with my first novel, which was 45 years ago, which is that there are a million things I'd rather do or need to do. I ought to do, I should do. Well, shoulds are shit, but I have all this other stuff telling me I ought to be doing it and talk about beating a dead horse, blah, blah, blah. My husband, your, your people here will love um, my husband's book, which is called, his name is Neil Allen. His website is Shapes of Truth, but his new book at, at, from Namaste, you must know them. They're incredible. They did Eckhart Tolle. His new book is called Better Days, Taming the Inner Critic. And I really, I think if you go to that site, Shapes of Truth, you can kind of get an excerpt or a feel for it. It's what the Freud would have called the inner critic. I mean, the superego, right? And it's that voice that we internalize at four and five years old, at three and four and five that socialized us, that taught us not to run into the street, it kept us safe, it kept us small, taught us not to, you know, talk out of turn, taught us not to swim beyond where, you know, but believe me, at 70, I have very, very good safety habits with swimming and, and traffic, but that voice, Neil talks about it being a parasite, and that in his work, you bring it forth and you thank it for having kept you alive in keeping you small and worried, but that it's time you think you might want to take over. So when I met him seven years ago, that, that work he does completely changed my life because now the voices that I'm sure you hear, which is, you know, you've been out there for years and years. You're all over YouTube. You've written your book. You da, 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 da. Who needs it? Right. When, you, when I recognize that voice, now I know to say, oh, it's you. And then to do everything I write about in Bird by Bird. I don't know, that bird book, that bird, that book came out 25 years ago. And the main things are, you get your butt in the chair. You make a commitment. I sit down at the same time every morning, five days a week. I don't wait for inspiration. I never feel inspiration. You know, the inspiration is that I said I love to help people I love to make people laugh 
I, I actually sometimes like to write, I love second drafts, but you know, to get to a second draft, you have to write the shitty first draft. So those are the two main points that help me every single day as a writer is really short assignments, bird by bird, and really shitty first drafts. And when you read this new book, you're going to love it. You're going to think it's really, really good. I mean, I've been doing this full time for 50 years and I'm getting better like I would have if it had been piano or, or tennis. But um, let me just tell your listeners the bird by bird story, which they might not know. In, in Northern California, when I was coming up in the 50s and early 60s, uh, in fourth grade, you write your first research paper. Up till then, you get the paper where you draw the picture. I don't know if you had this, but you draw pictures and then you tell a story on these really big lines below the picture. Yeah. In fourth grade, you have to do research. And, and in California, you did two papers. One was on... One was called the, Cal the Sacramento Project, our capital, and one was on birds. And so you had a whole semester to research birds, gather pictures, da-da-da-da-da, and then it was due on the last Monday, two Mondays um, before school ended. And I loved school. My older brother had not started the weekend before it was due, and my dad was a writer. And my older brother, who was a totally tough guy, like a hood, was actually crying because he'd had four months to do it. And my dad sat down with him. He got out Audubon, got out Roger Tory Peterson, the, the right, the binder paper, the Brads. You're old enough like me to remember Brads as a way of collecting paper punched manuscripts and magazines with pictures of birds. And he said, buddy, we're just going to take it bird by bird. You're going to study about chickadees for just a you know, few minutes, just immerse yourself in chickadees and then tell me about chickadees in your own voice. Mm. And you're just gonna write a first draft and then I'm gonna help you make it better. And then you're gonna write about egrets, you know, and, and, and you're gonna study egrets for a few minutes and look at them and immerse yourself in them for 10 or 15 minutes and then tell me about egrets in your own voice. And that's how I'll get, all books get written. That's how I'll, essays i just wrote this facebook piece i was telling you about it's not for it's 700 words maybe you know three manuscript pages and it took two hours and i did a bird by bird i had one thing i wanted to talk about one graph one paragraph i had this other thing i wanted to weave in well you know what it's like where you're going to kind of shoehorn in something that makes you look so erudite or so evolved and it sticks out you know it's not organic to the material Oh, uh, you have to take it out. Jessica Midford, the great writer from the England and then who lives in the East Bay, Berkeley all her life. She always said, you have to kill your little darlings. And that what she meant was you go through the material and you take off the stuff that you jammed in because it seems so wise or just burning a hole in your creative pocket or whatever. You just take it out if it's not natural, if it's not in the natural order of things. So... As God is my witness, that is how I write every single thing. That's how I wrote this morning. That's how I wrote the new book starting over a year ago. You know, I take really short assignments, paragraph by paragraph, and I let myself write really shitty first drafts. So, yeah. I love that. Mm. So what time do you sit down to write? Nine. I sit down at nine because... I'm up early and I'm actually I'm all often in bed with my iPad and a sleeping husband or he, he gets up early often too, but the kitty, 
my main muse. And I'm often in bed with the iPad because it's so comfortable. It's sacred space, the early morning in on the bed with my big back support and the kitty. And my mind is so fresh. And I bet yours is too. First thing in the morning before the world gets its dirty mitts on you, or you start hearing news or the texts start coming. Oh, can you do me a favor? Oh, do you want, oh, did you hear about, you know? And in the first thing in the morning, it's like I have a, a direct channel to something that is sort of so pure that I actually don't have a word for it. But I have often written, I, I'd written at 6.15 this morning, I started the Facebook page and I finished, as you know, at about quarter of nine, right before you and I were going to get together. Yeah. You know, there's no rules that are that, are, that are my way of doing things that would necessarily be any others. I really rely on my friends. I have I sent the piece off to two people by eight that read for me. And I and I was also picking someone's brain yesterday. Oh, what, what do you think about or how what is what would be a good way to say? Mm -hmm. And then I'll talk for 10 minutes because you can't say it for 10 minutes worth of writing because you can say it in a paragraph. And we talk and we jam. And she says, well, what if you try this approach? I go, yeah, yeah. And then it's like three pages. And then it's two. And then it's one. And then it's a paragraph. And so I really rely on my friends. Other people don't. I always need someone to edit my work. It's always too long. And it's always a little overwrought. You know, it's always a little too kind of purple or too spiritual to you know when i i just want to tell you what's i want to share with you what's on my heart today what i make of it all what might help you mm -hmm. might be bread for the journey thank you that's interesting it, so the do you read for these friends or yeah i read for my friends uh -huh. i have two people and neil and i've read better days probably four times because it's taken him four drafts you know, uh -huh. And it was beautiful from the beginning, but it was a first draft. Yeah. And then I read the second draft and I could see how much better it was, but that I thought it sounded a little lofty, a little erudite. Uh -huh. And what is so beautiful about a book is, is when it welcomes you in, when it yeah. says to you, hey, Sultan got a minute? And yeah. Say, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I like that you know. about your writing a lot. I like the way... I feel like I know you when I read it, like like I'm there in your house with you or on a walk with you or where, wherever you take the reader. There's something very intimate. I'm sure you've heard that before. Well, thank you. But it's, yeah. So it you talked about God and I know that you're Christian and so I wonder, how do you experience the soul? Like that word, you know, in, in Buddhism, theoretically, we don't have a soul. Mm -hmm. um, and, but then the Tibetans kind of snuck it in, mm -hmm. uh, in the back door with this word called la, which is very similar to soul. But what is the word? La. Yeah, it's like L-H-A, la. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Um, Those sneaky Tibetans, huh? Yeah, I know. Yeah, they snuck in a lot of things to Buddhism that weren't there in the beginning. But anyway, yeah, so what do you, what do you mean by that word? Well, 
I think in Dusk Night Dawn, but it could be the book before it. I'm talking to my kids, Sunday school kids about soul. And they just had such beautiful, beautiful ways of seeing it. My oldest kid, who was 14, he said he, he experienced it as like a very tiny silvery snow globe in the very, very center of his heart. And I just love that. And then Ram Dass says that who we are, and I would say who we are is our soul or our spirit, is loving awareness. Mm -hmm. And I usually have an ID bracelet on. I had to take it off to wash, to polish it. I got, I got food. You don't want to hear. I took it off. But I have an ID bracelet that says loving awareness because I think that's the truth of my spiritual identity. And I would say that's who my soul is, is, you know, beyond my identities, beyond my persona, beyond everything I've done that is visible, is this the heart, you know, the heart that is one with the heart of God that is one with you that is just the only thing there is this love energy and in and, and it's mine is my soul is kind of a little component of that a little holder for that love energy little pair of eyes of on that love energy watching the world tromp past me so it's like the the personal version or the kind of the home version of that vaster presence. Yeah. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, there's a beautiful line in the psalm, and it's, a, it's deep calling to deep. And oh, it's the true. deepest, deepest, truest part of me calling to, calling to the sky, calling to the moon, or calling to the waterfalls, calling to the sky, calling to the moon, calling to the stars, calling to the deepest that there is, and that there's just this one thing, you know, and that we're little tiny shards of it, you know, or what Rumi said, that, that we think we're waves in the ocean, but, but we're, or particles in the ocean, but we're really the ocean and particle, and I'm a particle of that of that energy that our friend Mr. Einstein said there is there's only this one thing yeah. we're all my table moving slowly my yeah. Sunday school kids and your grandchild moving really quickly and us you know somewhere in between there's this one thing energy and in my experience it's love energy it's the energy of light same thing and um, and and I'm a drop of that I'm the ocean in a drop yeah, that makes sense. So I think you just touched on this, but I'd like to hear you talk about God, because I've always had a hard time with the word and the, the, the he part of it. Oh, yeah, so do I. And so what do you mean by that word? Well, um, in my church, we pray to Mother, Father, God, by the way. Services at 11, that's St. Andrew Presbyterian in Marin City, California. There'll be about 30 of us. I mean, the love, I mean, whatever brought us into creation, whatever beat, beats my heart, whatever is the reason you and I feel that we know each other, whatever, you know, when, when in recovery, when people don't want to get involved with the word God for many, many good reasons, they might as a higher power in order to stay sober or out of their love addiction or their food or whatever, they just use good orderly direction or grace over drama. And I often with newcomers, 
offer up the great universal spirit, which is Gus. And so I offer Gus as a best friend and a companion. And I think God is the great universal spirit of love, the creator, the source, the baby, the baby Jesus. So you live in Marin, mm-hmm. right? You live in Marin. So you must have been exposed to Buddhism as many Americans haven't. So has Buddhism influenced you at all? Well, I grew up, my father, my parents were both atheists, but we had, my father was very, both my parents were very avant-garde and we listened on Sunday mornings to Alan Watts broadcasting from KPFA. And he had a connection to Bolinas where we had our family cabin. And so I was very, and also my my father was part of a literary magazine in the 50s called Contact that was um, publishing the avant-gardes and that meant the beatniks and that meant Allen Ginsberg and Gregory Corso and Jack, and Jack Kerouac and and so I was all and also my father, you know, there was Gary Snyder. There were the, the great poets were coming out of Buddhism, and so I was very aware of. And my father did, was um, very welcoming and embracing of Buddhism. He'd grown up in Japan, and because there was no God or spirit, he my father just had the utmost contempt for Christians. So, and then I really, really always believed, you know, I had a secret. I didn't share with my family. My best girlfriend, Shelly, who I still walk with three times a week, her mother was Christian science. And I grew up in this big easy chair. I spent the night there a lot with her three kids and me. And she would read, you know, scripture and it would kind of burble over me. Or she'd read Mary Baker Eddy, who, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Eddy is the, the, the mother of new thought. You know, she is from whom all new thought springs, you know? Anyway, and so I got that. And she thought I was a beautiful and perfect child of God, which I wasn't hearing at home. I mean, my parents were very loving, but they were very determined that we be, sub, sub, you know, excellent achievers, the highest possible achievers. And that destroyed me. You know, I was raised, we worship perfectionism. We worship the New York Times. You know, we had a little golden idol of the New York Times that we bowed down to before breakfast. And and so it was a long road back from that, from those values of intellectual prowess and, and achievement and a beautiful, perfect surface. And so by I dropped out of college at 19. And then no matter what I was doing, which was trying to become a writer, mostly, I was pursuing a spiritual life. And I tried with every ounce of my being not to be a Christian. And so I became just enamored with, with Buddhist writing and with Ram Dass, who was a huge part of my 20s and who wrote, you know, wrote so lovingly about the Buddhists. And then it's right after I got sober in, God, 1986, I became friends with Jack Cornfield. So he's been kind of, I'm, I'm his Jesus girl and he's my Buddhist bro. And, and so we've always talked about the, the Venn diagram of loving compassion and service. And, and we really make each other laugh and, and we've walked forever on the trails of Marin. So, so yeah, I mean, I've always just known how, profound and nourishing the Buddhist tradition was. And and I've had a lot of Buddhist friends in my life. We have Buddhists in recovery. And sometimes, you know, you just stop 
you know, you learn at some point, I didn't know this as a child, but figure it out is a bad mantra. <laughs> and so I stopped trying to figure out what was true, what was true here about, you know, the Christian tradition and the triune nature of the God, of the God and who shot the Holy Ghost or what was true about the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Jews. I mean, all of them have had a really huge, profound influence on, on the woman I became. And then finally, about a year before I got sober, I, I was um, going over to this funky little church because I could hear the songs of the civil rights movement, which my parents had been really involved in. And, and that's the music I grew up on was Pete Seeger and Joan Baez and the Weavers, you know, and we shall overcome and swing low, sweet chariot, and we shall not be moved. And I heard it, I was savagely hungover, and I went over there and I little by little decided to stay. And that was 38 years ago. So I've been sober 37. So I sort of had this gap year at St. Andrew where I smelled and I was hungover and bulimic and, you know, cranky. <laughs> and, it, and, I, and that was where I found a home. Wow. So you, you became a Christian out of rebellion. Well, it wasn't. Well, you know what? Here's what I would say. Let's say grace is spiritual WD-40 the movement of grace in our life to something, a little fresh air, something unclenches us. Yeah. You know, something helps us notice how angry we are. We thought we were just right, but it turns out we were really angry and we start to share that and it, it unclenches us. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and that's one way that the movement of grace moves through my life. And another way is the dark night of the soul. And it's running out of any more good ideas. And in my family, we worshiped good ideas. And in 1987, let's see, 1985, when I got involved with this church, it was a dark night of the soul. I was popular. I'd already published three books. I was born and raised in Marin. Everyone I love is here. My aunts, my uncles, my mom, my brothers, my very best friends, everything was here. But my soul felt like Swiss cheese, you know, and I just kept trying to shove stuff into those holes to fill it up and the holes just get bigger. And I was at that point where I didn't have any more good ideas. And I started to do that radical work of surrender, you know, of putting down my weapons and coming over to the winning side, which was people in what Martin Luther King called the precious community in which your life is based on. and. I don't know how to explain it because it was, I think I was insane. And it was like you said, after Dave passed, you really didn't even want to be here anymore. It's just too hard on this side of eternity, you know? And I really felt that. And the people there said, we want you keep coming back. Can I get you a glass of water? Mm -hmm. And that's really all we have to offer is that air in a loving community that is so nourishing and people saying, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Keep coming back. <laughs> Glad you're here. Can I get you a glass of water? Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. I'm actually on my way to be with Krishna Das tomorrow. Oh, yeah. I'm so jealous and so bitter. I can't stand it. <laughs> you can come. We're going to be together in North Carolina. They're doing a friend's oh, yeah, yeah. Ram Das thing. Yeah. And Ramdas is a very dear friend of mine. I met him in, in 1967 when he came to India with David Padwa mm. looking 
teacher, I was actually living with Bhagavan Das mm -hmm. in Kathmandu. And, and then Richard showed up and, and they left on the Be Here Now journey. And then I left on the journey to, to Dharamsala to, mm -hmm. to try to meet the Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. So, so your life is, I love your humility in terms of the addiction and the healing journey that you've been on, as well as just the, the depth of your spiritual practice and experience. It's so real. And I know that it's really a lifeline and in, in, in addiction healing, the spiritual path is not just like something on the side, it's central. And that's what I feel in your, in your writing and in you as a person. And so I, I just want to thank you for sharing yourself with me and with everyone else this morning. And I love you. I love you, Soltron. And you know we're going to keep talking. You yes. know we are just made for each other. <laughs> yes, I, I would really like that. And I just want to say to everybody out there who's listening to this that the books of Annie Lamont are amazing. And her journey is in every page. And it, they are so relatable. Thank you, love. Relatable. And I'm going to take my book with me, your book. Thank you. Maybe I'll give it to Krishnadas and say, hey, we were just talking. <laughs> Here, read this. Thank you, Annie, so much for being with us. I'll be thinking of you all day and holding you in my heart and traveling mercies. Thank you. And see you again. Yes. Okay, love. Lots of love. Thank you, everyone, for being with us for this Wisdom Rising podcast. May it benefit all beings. And I'd like to take a moment to thank the production team of Wisdom Rising and also to let you know that if you would like further information on my work or the associated people who work with Tara Mandala, you can reach out to the Tara Mandala website, T-A-R-A-M-A-N-D-A-L-A dot O-R-G. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe.